You're listening to Practical Ethics Bites with me, Nigel Warburton. And me, David Edmonds. Practical Ethics Bites is made in association with Oxford's Uhero Centre for Practical Ethics. It might seem odd even to raise the issue of ethics and homosexuality. After all, in the UK and much of the developed world, homosexuality is now legal. And social attitudes towards homosexuality have changed dramatically. But for much of recorded history, it was seen as a moral aberration. Some, particularly religious believers, still so regard it. As Janet Radcliffe Richards explains, one of the charges against homosexuality was that it was somehow unnatural. Janet Radcliffe Richards, welcome to Practical Ethics Bites. Thank you. The topic we're going to focus on is ethics and homosexuality. What is the connection between ethics and homosexuality? That for a lot of history, a lot of people have regarded it as morally wrong and a lot of people still do. What possible justifications could anybody give for saying that practising homosexual acts could be morally wrong? The traditional views come from religion and they're simply the rules of religion. But if you press the religion further, it will usually make claims about what's natural and that it's an unnatural activity because sex is supposed to be for engendering offspring. OK, so what's wrong with that as an argument? Well, if you believe in a God who has laid down a lot of rules and will get you into trouble if you don't obey them. That sounds like a pretty good argument to me. (laughs) But it depends whether you believe in that sort of God. Well, if I believe in a good God, why would a good God want to prevent people practising homosexuality? In some ways, the essence of a religious view is that the world has an underpinning moral structure as it was made by God, and the way you harmed the world was by going against the rules laid down by God. And you weren't supposed to understand the rules laid down by God because God is omnipotent and omniscient and you're not. So you just had to take the revealed word of God. Now, I'm not saying this is the only view, but this is certainly a very widespread view. And on that sort of view, you don't have Adam and Adam, you have Adam and Eve, and you go out and procreate, that's what God wants for us. Well, that's certainly a widespread view among religions, which may be why religions succeed if they tell you to have lots and lots of offspring. But it's interesting about this matter of the natural, because if you believe that the world has been set up by a good God to work in a particular kind of way and that it will work well unless beings with free will disobey the rules. That makes the natural the good if you want to start with that kind of metaphysics. But if you go into the kind of metaphysics we've had, well, since the scientific revolution, but more since Darwin, and you believe that the world hasn't got a moral underpinning and the natural is just what happens, then the natural is in itself neither good nor bad. And the trouble is people don't distinguish between these two different ideas of what underpins the natural. And most people still have a deep intuition that the natural is good. As you can see from all these cereals that have only natural ingredients... That's interesting. So there are two different meanings attached to natural. So one is the sense that what is natural is good and that comes from God somewhere. The other is a sense that whatever happens must be natural because we're part of nature. So anything whatsoever that happens is 
to that extent, natural. So there's no unnatural aspect of the universe. That's right. And that's one of the things that John Stuart Mill was beginning to argue in his article on nature. It doesn't mean that everything is good. It means that you have to decide as the answer to a separate question how to discover what is good and then how to make the world better. Whereas in the religious kind of approach, it's clear what's good. Presumably on the view that everything, in a sense, is natural, some natural things are actually really bad. Certainly that's true if you take the view that there is not a moral underpinning to the world. As Mill said, everything that men are hanged or imprisoned for are nature's everyday activities. If you think of a world with the kind of world that traditional Christianity came out of, God intended the world to be good and we damaged it by sin. It seems to me there's another style of argument that people use, which is to think about what the essence of a sexual relationship is and maybe smuggle in a view that it is heterosexual, procreative and based on the family unit. Well, it depends where you get these essences from, because if you think of the world as structured so that it's designed to work in a certain way, you might say, well, the essence of a woman is to bear children or something like that. But once you get into this other world where there isn't a moral underpinning and things just happen... Things don't have essences of that kind. That's another mistake. Because we're so used to thinking of the world in a certain way, we don't notice how the changes in science, which have changed our fundamental view of the world, have made certain old terminologies and ways of thinking obsolete. If you think that we are just evolved creatures and we just happen to be this way and some things about us are good and some aren't, then we have to decide which ones to endorse. We don't just take the authority of some book as interpreted by a priesthood. One of the things that's quite remarkable about sexual morality is the way in which attitudes have shifted towards practising homosexuality, both between male partners and female partners, in my youth it was not something you talked about. In my parents' time it was illegal. Now we're talking about the rights of gay people to marry. This means we have to bring up the matter of heterosexuality as well. If you think about the matter historically, there are really quite good reasons for the institution of marriage and quite good reasons for constraints on sexual activity. Because, obviously, it's a matter of how children are going to be brought up and how they're going to be protected. The real change in sexual morality came with contraception. Once you got heterosexual sex accepted as recreational rather than necessarily procreative, then it became very clear that there was no reason at all for banning homosexual sex. Interestingly, if you look at it from this point of view, really the objection to restrictions on homosexuality should have come much earlier because it could never have done any harm once you gave up the ideas of religion and God laying down the law. It's interesting, Jeremy Bentham, a philosopher 
writing at the early part of the 19th century, famous for the greatest happiness principle, utilitarianism, the idea that the way to organise society and to reform laws is to set up society in such a way that we bring about the greatest aggregate happiness, the greatest balance of pleasure over pain. He argued that homosexual acts don't cause harm and sexual pleasure can be a very intense pleasure. So it's actually immoral to legislate against it. I didn't know Bentham said that, but I wouldn't be at all surprised because he carried through his utilitarianism into a lot of unfamiliar territories, in particular the rights of animals, that animals matter because they're capable of suffering. But you have to remember, of course, that people who are writing with a view to persuading other people have to be careful not to go so far that they bring up reactions which will work against everything. For instance, when Mill was writing about the subjection of women, he didn't specifically advocate divorce because people were so much against divorce. And I imagine that may well have happened with homosexuality too. And it is interesting how visceral, how deep the reaction was of people who hated it. And there are still a lot of people who say they're disgusted by it but still think people have the right to do it. So you brought up this suggestion that people are disgusted by homosexuality. That is an interesting phenomenon throughout history, that there have been groups of people who have been thoroughly disgusted by things that don't even go on in front of them. Yes, it is. And the question is what the origins of the disgust are, because we have reason to believe that some of our revulsion to things like feces and so on are the result of a deep, innate, inbred, evolutionarily explained horror because we're trying to prevent disease. And maybe a revulsion to male homosexuality comes into that sort of category. And people would say, notice how AIDS first started spreading. So there might be something in that. But it's also interesting that people can learn disgust I've encountered this relatively recently with an old lady who had a black carer and she was so old that she hadn't got much experience of black people and she would talk about those black fingers holding the pills, handing it to her. She had learnt that disgust. There's no natural disgust there. And the same with the kind of disgust that arose for unfeminine women at the beginning of feminism. Could disgust be the basis of morality? Do you mean if we followed our feelings of disgust, would we get a better world? No, but we might do it the other way around. We might say, we've discovered this is a way to make a better world. Let's develop feelings of disgust for the opposite. I would like people to develop much stronger feelings of disgust for the way we treat animals, for instance, and not just accept it. So certainly it's no use as a tool, but it might be useful as a mechanism to bring about what we had reason to bring about for other arguments. Many people do rely on what they call their gut instincts to certain situations as a guide to how to behave. Why is that wrong? Well, the simplest answer from the point of view of a philosopher is it leads them into a whole lot of contradictions. And as the whole idea of morality is to guide what we do, if you're trying to be guided by a contradiction, you're guided in opposite directions at the same time and you haven't got a morality at all. So nobody's saying don't take any notice of disgust. It might have some 
useful basis. But what we're saying is, if you have a feeling of disgust, see how that meshes with other things that you care about, that you're sure are morally important. And so with the homosexuality one, unless you can show a real harm that comes from homosexuality, you think, I have a feeling of disgust about it, you might think that. But there are two people having consensual sex, getting pleasure from it, being frustrated if we stop them, which is more important, me indulging my preference for not feeling disgusted, or they're having the freedom to do something that harms no one else. Now, it seems to me when you put it that way, it's morally very clear. Now, I've heard quite an eminent moral philosopher argue that marriage is a relationship between a man and a woman. That's essentially what marriage is. And the notion of a homosexual marriage actually distorts the picture of what marriage truly is. Well, when you say what marriage truly is, you mean what marriage traditionally has been. Yes, well, of course it does. <laughs> but the whole question is whether we should stick to marriage in that way. Now, I think there are a lot of traditionally good reasons in the days before contraception and domestic devices which freed women up. There's a lot of reason for keeping men tied to the women that they've got the children from. So... Traditionally, you can see the point of marriage, but the trouble with the sexual revolution and feminism is that we now really need to rethink what the purpose of marriage was. I mean, we've now got into an idea when we think marriage is a continuation of romantic love, but marriage has always traditionally been a contract. It's been a legal measure for keeping you tied together, and presumably the justification of that was children. But once you start having the kind of intersexual freedom that we have now, and women expecting not to be dependent on men, then we need to consider what kinds of contracts we should have in the first place between the sexes. Should we, for instance, insist that if people are going to have children, they should be married? Should we say that's the only justification for marriage? Should we say marriage should be permanent until the children have grown up? How should we divide the assets? The fact is, the world is so different that we need to rethink the nature of the marriage contract. Now, we're doing that anyway by easing divorce and having palimony and goodness knows what else. But we've done it the wrong way around in moving from, as it were, pretending that marriage is what it always has been and then saying include homosexuality, which is obviously a very different thing. But if you start saying... What should we have as the social rules for linking people who want to have their lives committed together to join their resources and their lives? What sort of rules should we have for that? Then clearly homosexuality is a, an extension of it. You just ask what rules there should be that cover any relationship. Well, there is this institution of marriage. From the point of view of homosexuality, there is an inconsistency in allowing heterosexuals who may not be in a position to be procreative in any way to marry and not to allow homosexuals to marry. So there is a, a question of equality and consistency that has to be addressed. If you want a rational society, you accept that marriage exists, then you've got to accept, surely, that homosexual marriages and possibly polygamy should exist. 
Yes, but you can't do it right on the surface. You have to start by working out what the purpose of marriage is, what you want marriage to be, and then move from that to who can consistently enter it. If the purpose of marriage is to hold together two people who have together begotten a child, then it just doesn't arise for homosexuals. If you say the idea is for two people who like each other to go on living together and have a certain amount of commitment, then from that point of view, certainly consistency would require that homosexuals could marry. But it depends on your argument for marriage and what marriage is supposed to be achieving. Do you think there's any hope for engaging in argument with people from a religious background who think there's just something absolutely wrong with homosexuality? Well, what I was saying about these two different views of nature and what the world is fundamentally like, I am coming to the conclusion that there is simply no meeting of moral minds, and there can't be. Because if one believes that the world has been set up to be good and the way you implement the good is to do what God says and the other doesn't. The other one thinks the world is naturally a moral mess and our job is to see if we can make it a bit better. I can't see how they can meet and for that reason I think a great many debates which are between secular and religious people just don't get off the ground. They sometimes seem to, but as soon as you look at them in detail, you find problems in the logic of the way the arguments work. Janet Radcliffe-Richards, thank you very much. Thank you. For more Practical Ethics Bites, go to www.practicalethics.ox.ac.uk.